Here, two sides of a single block feel like two different cities. Crossing the street means going from an income of $8,000 a year to 10 times that. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. They all have names like Earth Day Drunk Dialing and Santa Claus and Drunk Girls Call the Payphone Near the Bar and Demonic Racist and His Newest Minions Call the Payphone. Those are some of the more tasteful ones. ReSound is a remix of audio stories, music, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. What else could you learn? Shoot, he got money. He happy. Look at his house. Look at everything he got. Shoot, I ain't got none of that. Today, we globetrot. Okay, we're really just dipping into two states in middle America, divided by the Mississippi River, but you get the picture. First, we visit a Nashville neighborhood where public housing and posh housing are across the street, but miles apart. And then to Columbia, Missouri, where a payphone rings in the middle of the night. If no one hears it, did it make a sound? Stick around. At ReSound, we can't get enough of local reporting that goes deep into the heart of an issue or event. It's not easy for newsrooms to do. It costs time and money. But the investment, especially in this case, was well worth it. From Nashville Public Radio comes a series called The Promise by producer Mariba Knight that explores life in public housing in a city on the rise. In this episode, the street that literally divides the poor from the rich gets breached with an outcome no one saw coming. Here's episode four of The Promise. They don't look at us as being peoples over here. They look at us as being a nuisance. I mean, you can go out this door. You go, I can walk out my door right now. And if I walk to anyone about my neighbor's house and say, hey, can I have a cup of sugar? If they got it, they're going to give it to you. But if you walk up there and knock on one of them doors and say, can I have a cup of sugar? It's going to be about eight polices, SWAT team, and they're going to tell you who's doing a burglary. That's Big Man, whose real name is Dexter Turner. He's a resident of Nashville's James Casey Public Housing Development, and he's talking about his wealthier neighbors up the hill. The fact is, when you live in Casey, a simple exchange like this is complicated. Here, two sides of a single block feel like two different cities. Crossing the street means going from an income of $8,000 a year to 10 times that. It means going from mostly black to mostly white, from public housing to private ownership. It's a line that few are comfortable crossing, and even fewer want to talk about. And today, that uncomfortable conversation that no one wants to have, we have it. They stay up there and we stay down here, basically. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. I don't know, just the whole situation and everything, we're... We just kind of let it be and kind of look the other way. It's like a us and them type of thing. That's what you see. That's how a lot of people interpret it. I mean, you see like all the nice houses, then you see the project, so. Because, I mean, this part of the block is beautiful. Like a lot of nice houses, everything like that. Obviously, 
over there less fortunate, but there's nothing we can do about it at this point. So we just kind of live and, and just get around it as much as we can. I mean, you can't progress that way if you don't know or take the time to find out about people over here. As the months went on, what Big Man had said about the cup of sugar, it stayed with me. It bothered me, actually, that he had these assumptions about his more affluent neighbors. I didn't want to believe they were true. As he'd laid out the scenario, he'd pointed toward a stunning new house one block over, just across an empty field where kids play touch football. It was a modern, gray-and-white home, three stories, with rows of picture windows. Someone had bought it a few months earlier for $750,000. And it only reinforced how Big Man felt about Casey and the rest of the neighborhood. We are a community within a community. This is what this is. But this is the part of the community that they don't want to hear. They don't want to see. I respected Big Man's view. The separation was evident. And not just racially and economically. In some ways, it was by design. All around Casey, there are fences cutting it off from the homes just outside the project. And inside Casey, cross streets dead end, or loop back onto each other. It's like this big knot of streets and buildings, and driving through it is pointless. There's nowhere to get to. That is, unless you live there. But suggesting the city build a wall around Casey to keep residents in. There are a lot of folks who feel like that wall already exists. I wondered if it was time to step outside Casey, if reimagining this housing project as a mixed-income neighborhood was going to work. These two communities had to start talking to one another. So I decided to put Big Man's theory to the test and meet whoever lived in the fancy white house up the hill. How are you? I'm good. So gorgeous. Hi there. How are you? Hi, I'm Steph, and... I'm Wolfgang. That's Wolfgang Blair and his wife Stephanie Jackson. He's in his early 60s, tall and thin, with snow-white hair that tickles the base of his neck. She's a few years younger, with bright eyes and a warmness you feel from the moment she shakes your hand. They tell me they were married a decade ago in Phoenix, Arizona, by a Buddhist monk, and their recent transplants from San Francisco... He's an investment banker and lawyer working to legalize medical marijuana in Tennessee. Stephanie works for a Fortune 50 company. Ever since Big Man made that comment about asking them for a cup of sugar, I'd become sort of obsessed with meeting the owners of this house. I'd planned to knock on their door, but, I mean, what was I going to say? Hey, I know this guy. He thinks he'll be arrested for knocking on your door. Is that true? Then I went to a community meeting at Casey. And there they were, sitting right behind me. It seemed like an auspicious start. It turns out, their move to Nashville was very deliberate. They spent two years weighing options. Charlotte, Albuquerque, Ashland, Oregon. And they chose this neighborhood because they wanted a place that felt like it needed their help. They wanted to make a difference. 
And we had people tell us, you know, it's dangerous to get off on Shelby, you know, don't do that at night, blah, blah, blah. Shelby Avenue is the main street that borders Casey. And so we came over here and we didn't feel that. Uh, We believe in uh, regeneration of neighborhoods, not gentrification. And I think the distinction has to do with your own personal values. So we believe that uh, going into an area that people have forgotten about uh, and, and we choose to up. live there, we bring everybody up. And so our value system is to bring hope, to bring it up, to regenerate it and, and to bring back uh, the values uh, that were all in the 21st century. I liked what Wolfgang was saying, though it did seem a little new agey. But by all accounts, Wolfgang and Stephanie seemed to genuinely care about the neighborhood. They were going to community meetings and talking to their neighbors. For instance, Stephanie was very worried about which basketball court was the safest and where the kids would play ball when the city decided to tear it down during Casey's big overhaul. They seemed like the real deal. How do you wrestle with this issue of kind of like the white savior complex or wanting to help neighborhoods or people from a position of privilege? Well, let me tell you, I grew up in the deserts of Arizona. My father was a traveling salesman. My parents never went to college. Uh, You know, I put myself through college and graduate school, so I don't consider myself a a person of privilege. So I I don't really look at it like I'm saving anybody. Now, granted, uh, because I'm white, I probably have had some advantages, uh, but I uh, took advantage of those advantages. uh, And now it's time to give back to other people, so... I think it's obvious to say they were not going to call the police on Big Man if he came asking for a cup of sugar. Still, I played them the tape that I had. I get his position. Uh, I would have the same position, too. Uh, but, you know, it's got to happen organically. Of uh, He needs a cup of sugar. I have, walk up the hill. The door is open. I, and we all have a drink at the same time and get to know each other. I should add that after Stephanie heard the tape, she said she'd like to make cookies with Big Man. Cooking, she said, had a way of bringing people together. I didn't know if Big Man was up to meeting his new neighbors, but I had to go ask. I believe <laughs> So listen, I came to tell you that... Remember when we talked about, you said, those houses up there? Yeah. With the cup of sugar? Mm-hmm. So get this. What? You know that real nice house? Yeah. I met the people that live there. Yeah? Yeah. And what they tell They want to try to help the neighborhood, and, um, you know, they're from San Francisco. It's a real nice house. Yeah, I believe it is. So, wait, I had an idea. What if I broker to meet it? What you mean? Walking through the project? That ain't no problem. It took a few weeks to get schedules lined up. Wolfgang was traveling, and Big Man had his hands full with the kids. We settled on a walkthrough, a tour around Casey. But then, three days before, a 16-year-old girl was shot and killed on Big Man's street, caught in a crossfire between two rival groups. We decided the neighborhood might be too on edge. So Big Man... Dressed in his usual uniform of cargo shorts and a silly t-shirt, this one had a panda bear on it, decked out with a neck of gold chains. We set off to meet Wolfgang and his wife at their house up the hill. Let's go knock on the door. 
Hello. Wolfgang, this is Big Man. Hi. <laughs> this is Wolfgang. I'm All right. As you can probably tell from my bizarre Oprah hello, I'm pretty nervous about this meeting. It sort of feels like I'd set someone up on a blind date, and now I have to go on the date with them. I didn't know if they would click. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's different, isn't it? Slackjawed, Big Man looked around at the bamboo floors, the soaring ceilings, and the sleek modern furniture. <laughs> no, nah, it used to be two houses on this lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's my oh, wife, this Stephanie. Is Stephanie. How are you doing? This Big is Man? Big Man. Dexter. Everyone calls him Big Man. What would yeah. you like to be called? Dexter or Big, Big Man? Man? Big Man? Yeah. You got it. It's like I filled out an application one time and actually put Big Man on it, so I stuck with it. I like it. Then Wolfgang notices that Big Man's wearing a 49ers cap, his home team. Yeah. He's yeah. a 49ers fan. Oh, big one. Do or die. I can kill this. They can go 32 and I'm still going to be supporting them. Yes, sports. The WD-40 of social exchanges. Big man, do you want to tell them where you live? I live. Let's see. If you look out your door. Yeah. I live. Well, what I guess what some people call a rig. That big green van right there. Yeah. Yeah. That's my van. It's always I, parked there. Yeah, that's yeah, my it's, okay. <laughs> it's either there or a little bit down right yeah. there in front of that Jeep. But I live right down that sidewalk right there. Oh, wow. When Big Man brings up his kids, Stephanie's oh, eyes light up. I got two kids now. She yeah. runs inside so. and comes back out holding a huge jar of homemade trail mix. Oh, my God. Yeah? My kids. Oh, my God. Like when they get back from school? They out. This will probably be gone before they get to school. <laughs> they, that probably be gone before they get to school. But my kids used to like that as a snack. They can get my, home my from school and snacks. They, they, they go snacks. in on anything that's eatable. Despite my nerves, the conversation seemed to be going smoothly, and pretty soon, Big Man was getting down to the more serious stuff: the difference between his side of the block and Stephanie and Wolfgang's. I mean, well, what what some people say is two different cities. You know, this is a city, but that's a city within the city. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people don't, I mean, well, it's people over there that's really, I ain't going to even lie to you. They scared to walk up through here because the first thing they think is people up here going to call police on them. No, no. I mean, I'm being serious. No, I, I'm, I'll be out watering stuff, and I know what you're saying because I, I was raised out yeah, west. So, I mean, so race means like nothing to me. So I see, you know. A uh, black person walk, they won't look at me, you know. And then, but I'll say, hey, how you doing? And then we'll start talking to each other, but they'll never, they're afraid. I know they're afraid. I mean, it's just the point, it's the point that, it's the point that people don't, I mean, it's a misconception. Me, myself, I mean, it's a lot of people over here that you'll probably go down through the office. I walk down through, I might get robbed. No. I mean, you got to think about it. It's generations of families that's over there. Yeah. And you got a lot of them people that only thing they know is them projects. Yeah. A lot of them, I mean, you got a couple of them that's fortunate to take their kids probably a little bit past Shelby and say they gone downtown or they done gone to the football game. Yeah. You got a couple of them might be that fortunate, but you got a lot of them that's not. Just a quick note here. When Big Man says some people are lucky enough to go downtown or to a football game, that's just a mile away. So you got a lot of kids, you got a lot of people that's over there that they they don't know about this, they don't know about the people up here, they don't meet people up here. Me, I, I can tell I'm not the only one who's nervous. Big Man is talking nonstop. 
Poor Wolfgang can't get a word in edgewise. But I sense that Big Man has been waiting for this moment, to set the record straight. And Wolfgang is soaking it all in, careful not to overstep. We tell people where we live and they're kind of nervous. So we believe in what's called regeneration. Regeneration is going to a neighborhood like this and giving people hope. Hey, we're like you. Let's get to know each other. Let's help each other. Yeah. And, and let's regenerate the community. Instead of I'm not sure what I expected, but I'm just glad they're not skirting the real issues. So I asked Wolfgang and Stephanie if the violence inside Casey ever concerns them. Do you guys worry? Do you hear the shooting or the gunshots, or do you ever worry about that? I hear them, and I sometimes don't know if it's firecrackers or gunshots. I, you know, that right there. But I do hear them. Yeah. Um, Do I worry? No, because it's like I can't worry because I can be walking downtown Nashville and I can get hit by a car. I could get shot. I mean, you just can't. That's the whole point. You can get done anywhere. Stephanie's remarks would come to haunt me, but I'll get to that later. As we stand on Wolfgang and Stephanie's front porch, Big Man looks out over Casey. From up here, you get a clear view of the project. Right behind it is Nashville's changing skyline, dotted with cranes and skyscrapers in mid-construction. The view is almost hard to reconcile. Glittering towers growing out of 1930s public housing. In his gut... Big man knows Casey's renovation will change all this. And he thinks there will be winners and losers. Now, I mean, I can't say what they're going to try to do. They're going to try to weed them out. That's what I call it. You weed out the weed out the ones that's barely making it to the ones that's trying to make it. I think that's what's going on. Yeah. It may sound extreme, but Big Man's lived through this before. He grew up in a nearby project, Sam Levy Homes. When that was overhauled a decade ago... Few low-income units were rebuilt, and hardly any of the original residents returned, in part because so many didn't meet the new qualifications. But Casey's remodel is supposed to be different. The city says it'll build enough affordable apartments so everyone in Casey can stay right where they are. But Big Man has always been skeptical of this promise. And today, with Nashville's rising rents and higher-than-average poverty rate, he worries. At the rate that things are going and, I mean, the price of living, I mean, yeah, you struggle just to keep a roof over your head now, let alone keeping food on your table. And, I mean, you got some people that's two-family households down here that's barely making it. He's right. People in Casey are struggling. A recent Vanderbilt study crunched the numbers. It concluded that between 2000 and 2011, Casey residents saw their median income decrease by up to 20 percent. Meanwhile, two blocks outside Casey, residents' income almost doubled. This profound disparity is what fuels big man's skepticism about Casey's future. People don't need new apartments, he says. They need jobs. They need economic opportunity. And it just so happens the city is about to funnel $600 million into renovating Casey, which means a lot of jobs. So why not hire some Casey residents, Big Man wonders. Turns out, this isn't a pipe dream. The federal government has something called Section 3. 
And basically, it says that during these sorts of construction projects, the city should hire residents when they can. But the housing authority hasn't followed it in the past. From Cellar Court, they got tore down, remodeled. They tore it down, ground up, did it. They did not use anybody from there. So Big Man is skeptical. As the conversation winds down, Stephanie signals that she has a work meeting she needs to get to. Nice Nice to meet you. And I don't know what, but we'll think about it. You think about it, too. Hey, I'll go down to Mayor Barry with you and say, hey, why aren't you creating the Section 3 jobs? You you, you want to do the jobs? And I'll be happy. Be more than happy to get the workers. Yeah. Yes, it's okay. really nice to meet you and give. Yeah. And don't you eat all that? Yeah. Stephanie points to the jar of trail mix as she heads inside, and Wolfgang continues. He's a lawyer, he says. The jobs issue, he might actually be able to help. Yeah, I hear exactly what you're saying. That's why I'm here. That's why I believe in regeneration. Because if I can say, "Hey, I'll help you. I can give you some hope," that's how we're going to change the system together. See what I'm saying? So I have no problem going to the mayor and saying, "Hey." This guy told me, Section 3, he's got kids and jobs. I'll stand up and do that. But you don't think about doing that because that's not where you're coming from. The people over here, if you say like now, you walk over here now, you ask them what do they want, what do they need, what do they're going to tell you. Remodeling or tearing them down, that's not going to help nothing. I I hear you, I hear you. I mean, but what these people really got to say, it don't mean nothing. No, but that's why I'm here to give a voice to the community and guys like you. Now, part of me wished the powers that be would listen to folks in Casey without Wolfgang's help. But I can't deny the importance of this exchange. Wolfgang, who is politically savvy and well-connected, is telling Big Man he'll go to bat for him and for the people of Casey. It's a remarkable and unexpected moment. With a plan in the works, I tell them I'll pass along contact info so they can talk more. We say our goodbyes and begin the short walk back to Big Man's apartment. All right. Talk to you guys soon. All right. Okay. Talk to you. Thanks. I should have bought him a blunt. That little wheeze is me trying not to laugh. This remark is so quintessentially Big Man. Funny, candid, and totally unsentimental. Big Man was a little skeptical that Wolfgang could break away from his work on medical marijuana to follow through on the plan. But he seemed genuinely energized. Only thing you have to do is get the people some jobs that's already living here to help remodeling them. Help, you know, spruce them up. Put us some porches out there where we can sit out on the patio stoop or something. We ain't got to run through no gates and things like that. But our kids got a better basketball court. She, I wouldn't even sure, they didn't solve all Casey's problems, but a guy named Big Man just walked up the street and met a guy named Wolfgang, and he left with a jar of trail mix, not in handcuffs. In the weeks that followed, Big Man and Wolfgang kept talking. Big Man had an idea for a small business, hauling waste from building demolition sites, something Casey would definitely be needing in the near future. And they talked about it regularly, over the phone and in emails, They made plans to meet up and talk more. When I saw Big Man at KC, he seemed surprised that Wolfgang was actually following through on his promise. Yeah, he 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 aye. He aye. He a man of his word. I give to him. He aye. I mean he 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 said he was gonna do what he he doing what he said he was gonna do. 
Wolfgang became sort of a mentor. They started hanging out, watching sports together, talked about life and work. They got traction on the new business, piled into Wolfgang's gray Prius, and drove downtown to get paperwork from the city clerk so they could start filing for a business license. Big Man says he didn't think two men their size, they're both quite tall, would fit in such a small car. But they did. Big Man said it was feeling like the beginning of a really good thing. Maribel, did you hear the bad news? But the news is even worse on my end. Uh, Call me when you get this message. I got this voicemail on the night of November 16th. I was on vacation out of the country and without cell service. Then a press release popped up in my email. Hey, um, I just got a press release from the police that said, um, well, I'm I'm just going to read it. November 16th, 2017. These precinct detectives are investigating an apparent murder-suicide involving suspected shooter Wolfgang Blair, 61, Stephanie Jackson, 56, inside the couple's 601 South 9th Street residence. Jackson's son told... The release went on to explain that Jackson's son told police his mother was having problems with Wolfgang and had plans to move to Phoenix, where he lives. She'd booked a flight for the day before, but had never boarded the plane. Unable to contact Stephanie and worried, he'd flown to Nashville the next morning, called the police from the airport, and upon entering the house, they found Stephanie and Wolfgang, dead on the second floor. Stephanie was in the hallway, next to her packed suitcases. Wolfgang was in the bedroom. Next to him was a semi-automatic handgun. Oh my God. This is so terrible. I called Big Man as soon as I got back into cell range. Hey, hey Big Man, you there? Yeah. Big, yeah, okay, okay, I'm sorry, that took me a second. So I got your message. <sighs> I, 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 all I know is I talked to him, what, Sunday? Big Man said he and Wolfgang had been spending a lot of time together. True to his word, Wolfgang was helping Big Man launch his small business. They had been working on getting the license and had plans to meet up in a few days to file some more paperwork. So, I mean, it was like everything with him was Peachy King. Right. And I mean, when I talked to him, when, I, when he called me, he was talking about when he was coming back. He said, Tuesday, no later than Wednesday morning. And... It was like, okay, I see you then. There's no telling where Wolfgang was or when he actually came back, but police say he likely shot Stephanie on Wednesday morning before turning the gun on himself. The news had sent Big Man reeling. I hadn't realized how close he and Wolfgang were actually getting. It's like for me to get to know this person, I got to know this man. I actually get up there. After that, I have been up there again, though. I mean, me and him have actually sit there and talk. Whatever. Oh, you went back up there? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I I mean, talking to him, you would never think that this is what they have capable on their mind. 
For Big Man, whose problems seemed to mostly revolve around money, the idea that someone like Wolfgang would murder his wife and kill himself confounded him. Wolfgang seemed to have everything. The fanciest house in the neighborhood, a nice car, a good job. I mean, I know some people that took their lives, but I mean, they really had problems. I mean, but this, to see what you got, See the thing that you have? Mm-hmm. I don't see it. I don't, I, don't, I don't see it. Right. Their life looks pretty perfect. I mean, look pretty perfect? Come on. I mean, actually, I mean, really, would you actually say looks pretty perfect? That's about as perfect as you can get. I mean, they got, man, they had a hideaway TV in the living room. Come on. Big Man and Wolfgang were both Alabama fans, and Wolfgang invited him over to watch the game. They sat in his living room on an overstuffed sofa and watched Alabama cream the University of Tennessee. Now, I know when we were in that living room last time, there was no TV in that living room. And I was like, ooh. And I said, I wasn't trying to really just act like I was peeping your house, but I didn't notice this TV right here. He said, oh, that's a hideaway. This motherfucker actually goes up the motherfucking wall. But what I'm saying is the perception that I that you see from this person, now, you wouldn't expect to see it. I mean, you couldn't see it. I just want to take a moment. How this ended was a shock to everyone, especially to Big Man. The whole point of getting him and Wolfgang together was to find a connection. I know it was contrived but it felt like the only way to bridge these two communities. But the thing about it is, in some ways, the death of Wolfgang and his wife, in this odd way, made Big Man realize they had more in common than he imagined. Clearly, Wolfgang was living with these secrets, these demons. And for Big Man, he thought, that's me. Wow. I thought I had a problem. I mean, for real, in perspective, I thought I had problems. It's not that Big Man would ever do what Wolfgang did, but he too lives with things that nag at him, that haunt him, things he keeps hidden, that he doesn't show to the world, doesn't tell me. This is who we are, he thought. This is inside all of us. I mean, so we all we all got it in us. It's there. It's done. Trust me, it's done. The next day, I went over to see Big Man and talk more. And he was in a much darker mood, like the reality of everything was setting in. He was curt with me, playing games on his phone while I tried to talk with him. Are you going to play your game the whole time? Mm. Are you going to play your game? What you want me to do? I mean, ain't nothing I can tell you about this man. I, well, from what I know, it ain't my my configuration of this man. It's a whole different thing from what I see now. I mean, what else is it to say? I mean, what else is it to do? I pushed Big Man not to give up on the business. To maybe let me call the city and see if anything could be salvaged. He was adamant, though. Wolfgang had all the paperwork up in his house, and it all had his name on it. Without the forms and the files, 
there was no way Big Man could pick up where Wolfgang left off. He'd have to start all over again. When I urged him to call and make sure, he got angry with me. His name, my name, nowhere. See, that's the whole point. You're not understanding, and really, I don't even want to keep talking on this. See, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. It was the first time in all the months I've talked with Big Man that he got visibly agitated with me. It seemed odd that he was so angry, but I could tell he wasn't angry about the business. He was angry about Wolfgang and what he'd done. It wasn't the man he knew, and he was still trying to process it all. All I know is I met two, I can kind of say, wonderful people. They was cool. They was actually somebody you could actually talk to. It wasn't no if ands, buts, nothing like that. He was, he was like actually, you could actually tell he cared about what he was doing. What else could you learn? Shoot, he got money. He happy. Hey, look at his house. Look at everything he got. Shoot, I ain't got none of that. Shoot. But I guess everybody just the same. The Great Divide was produced and reported by Mariba Knight for The Promise from Nashville Public Radio. For the Third Coast website, we asked Mariba to describe the elements that shaped her series, The Promise. And she included honesty, time, more time, and the mentorship of award-winning writer and producer Alex Kopowitz. To read our complete conversation with Mariba, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Payphones seem to have a special place in the hearts of radio producers who love to make stories about them. There was a piece about a payphone in the desert, an entire series built around randomly calling payphones all over the world, and a payphone in Japan to talk to the dead, just to name a few. Now we bring you this, the story of a forlorn payphone in Columbia, Missouri, that rings in the middle of the night. Here's reporter Emerald O'Brien. The first time I heard the payphone on Cherry Street and 6th Ring, it was 2 a.m., the street was totally empty, and I started freaking out. Not because I was scared, but because I had heard about this phone. Hello? Hello? Come to Harpo's? This phone has been ringing at night for eight years now, confusing and enticing late-night passersby into answering it. It's a little bit of Columbia nightlife folklore. And that's how I came to hear of the payphone. Friends who had answered it and talked to drunk girls and people pretending to be Santa Claus on the other end. When I answered the payphone myself, I heard what a lot of people hear. Hello? Why don't you come up to Harpo's? My best guess was the number to the payphone was written on a bathroom stall at Harpo's, the bar right down the street. I mean, after all, drunk people do love to do stupid stuff. 
But something about the phone call was off. It didn't sound like someone who just discovered the number on accident. So I googled something like, payphone Columbia Mo Harpos. A few pages in was a link to a wikia for soundboard prank calls. A wikia is like a Wikipedia, but for a single topic. Within the wikia, I found this. Nomad Cow at BK is a prank caller who has been active on YouTube since July 2008. And then a little further down. His calls to the payphone at Harpo's in Columbia, Missouri, for which he is perhaps best known, have lured many intoxicated college students into humorous or otherwise unusual conversations. At this point, I have to say, I have no way to confirm any of the stuff I've found online about him, because anything I can find seems to be intentionally anonymous. But what this means is this guy who goes by the username NomadCow at BK calls this one phone over and over and over again using these soundboards. He records the interactions and uploads them to YouTube for other prank call enthusiasts to enjoy. A soundboard is basically just a collection of recorded sounds that you can click to play in any order. If you've ever used a phone app that makes specific sounds, like this one, then you understand the basic idea of soundboard. So prank callers create soundboards with a bunch of statements from characters, and by choosing different buttons, they try to make the soundboard characters converse, to the best of their ability, with people on the other end of a phone call. Of course, a soundboard's lexicon is pretty limited. Hey, you guys want to come down here? Come on down here. Where, where are you at in Harbo's? First floor or second floor? The idea is to convince someone that they're talking to a real person. Soundboards are often of celebrity voices, but the other popular type is called a victim soundboard. Prank callers refer to the people who pick up prank calls as victims, and if a victim is particularly interesting or funny or angry, the prank callers will cut their responses up to create new soundboards that they'll then play back for other victims. And that's something that this prank caller, Nomad Cow at BK, has done. I'm just going to call him Nomad Cow from here on to save time. Also, I'm going to use he based in part on evidence and in part on convenience. So initially, Nomad Cow made calls to a bank of payphones inside the bar at Harpo's. But those phones were removed around 2010 when the bar changed management, so Nomad Cow shifted his focus to the outdoor payphone just down the street. He took some old conversations with drunk girls from the phones inside the bar and turned them into a soundboard, and that's why they're so specific to tell you to come there. From a prank calling perspective, he's got a pretty good thing going. He works a phone in a place and time where most of the foot traffic is at various states of inebriation. This makes them more likely to answer the phone in the first place and more likely to be entertaining. I don't know how many of the nearly 900 videos Nomad Cow has posted on his YouTube account are from this phone specifically, but it seems to be the source of a lot of them. They all have names like Earth Day Drunk Dialing and Santa Claus and Drunk Girls Call the Payphone Near the Bar and Demonic Racist and His Newest Minions Call the Payphone. Those are some of the more tasteful ones. Some of the calls even get pretty sexually explicit. I learned what I could from the internet about this guy and his hobby, but if I was going to get anywhere real, I needed to talk to him. I hadn't found any contact information, but I did know of one pretty direct source. Hello? Uh, is this no mad cow at BK? No. Yeah. Okay, hi. Uh, my name is Emerald O'Brien, and I'm a reporter at the local... Uh, radio station here in Columbia, Missouri, and I really would love to talk to you. Um, I asked him to so, give me a call, I'd not really sure what the consequences were going to be, 
but within the hour. Hello? Why don't you come up to Harpo's? Oh, my God, yeah. Um, hi, what's up? Another time I tried the payphone method, he called and I didn't answer, but I got this message. I am a lab mouse. I escaped from my cage. Never had a job. This is actually a clip from a 90s cartoon called Animaniacs. But you will respect me, yes. Once my plan is unfurled, you will call me your leader. I'll be king of the world. So that seemed to be a dead end for now. But I needed to understand what was going on here, and more importantly, why. So I found someone else to talk to. Uh, I guess I got into prank calling when I was a kid, just like everyone else. And the difference is that I just never quit, and now I'm old and I still do it. How old are you now? Is that a too personal of a question? (laughs) Oh, no, not at all. I'm 43. Brad Carter runs an online community called the Phone Losers of America. These days, it's mostly centered around a podcast Brad runs. But for a while, it was a highly trafficked online forum for prank callers. I actually found the site when I found some of Nomad Cow's old posts there. Brad is actually pretty responsible with his calls, which may just come from age and experience. And that's refreshing because when you start to look at this world of prank calling, it can feel pretty fast and loose. A really successful prank call will probably end in someone screaming profanities or threats. On the Phone Losers webpage, Brad put up a list of rules of prank calling. This is stuff like don't make threats, don't cause damage, don't impersonate the police. I made the I put those up there to just kind of give a guideline to people um, so that they, you know, just to keep them out of trouble mostly. But also it's it's nice. People actually follow them and, um, you you know, it keeps them out of trouble and and it, it, it makes things just happier for everyone, I think. I don't know if Nomad Cow follows these rules, but he doesn't seem to do anything that would get him into legal trouble. At the very least, not for the recordings. Missouri is a one-party consent state, which means that only one person on the phone call has to be aware of a recording for it to be legal. By this point, I'd pretty much tapped the internet for all there was to know about this guy. And he wasn't reaching out to me, at least not the real person. My leads were getting pretty dry. So I called the company that owns the payphone. It's a communications company called CenturyLink, and the phone actually sits right outside its Columbia office. I figured someone there had to know about the calls. I mean, after eight years, it couldn't be a total secret, right? I asked the regional press person, Nancy Davini McNeely, to look into it, hoping for some anecdotes or maybe the phone numbers that the calls came from. I heard back within a couple days. Uh, Okay, so tell me what you just told me on the phone. Um, CenturyLink was not aware that the payphone we own on the 600 block of Cherry Street in Columbia, Missouri, was being used for any reason other than its intended purpose. Um, we have determined the payphone is no longer necessary, and we'll, re- we'll be removing it in the near future. Um, and this, this sort of stemmed out of my phone call, didn't it? <laughs> um, it did help us um, make that decision, uh, probably a little quicker than we would have, but we always monitor the usage. So we had known for a while that there was low usage on that phone. For the record, this is not where I was expecting things to go, nor was it where I wanted it to. I actually contemplated trying to get the CenturyLink people to change their minds. But on the other hand, the calls are often profane, vulgar, even sometimes racist. They aren't illegal, but they're definitely ethically questionable. Maybe taking the phone out would be for the best. Anyway, I ramped up my efforts to find the caller. My only lifeline to Nomad Cow was about to dry up, and I didn't have a lot of time. I left a message on the payphone again. 
I figured out how to send a private YouTube message. Brad Carter, the guy from the Phone Losers of America, found the email address that Nomad Cow registered on the forums with and forwarded him an email from me. Then I waited. The payphone died at 2.52 p.m., about two weeks after I called CenturyLink and two months after I first answered the phone. It was a weird funeral. A bunch of CenturyLink employees came out to watch it being removed. And though none of them wanted to speak on tape, almost every one of them joked about how they wouldn't be hearing it ring nightly anymore. I wasn't sure what would happen after the phone was gone. Would I be harassed by the prank caller, or would the story just be over? Then, the messages came back. Hi, you've reached Emma O'Brien. I'm sorry I'm unavailable, but leave me a message with your name and number, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Did they take out the payphone at CenturyLink across from Columbia College on Cherry Street? I think payphones provide a valuable service in emergencies. I got a couple messages like this. Around the same time, I got an email from someone claiming to be a friend of Nomad Cow. They said Nomad Cow had asked them to get in touch as he, quote, rarely talks with anyone outside the prank call community. Okay, if I couldn't confirm any of the identities of the people contacting me before, I really can't confirm them now. But for the first time in this whole process, I was getting full sentences from a seemingly real person. I still wanted direct contact, so I spent about a week negotiating, trying to get Nomad Cow on the phone. The friend told me they would forward any messages and questions onto Nomad Cow, but couldn't guarantee any answers. After several discouraging messages that pretty much convinced me I wasn't going to get this guy on the phone, I settled and sent off a list of questions. About 24 hours later, I got an email back. I had answers, presumably from the prankster himself. He said he started this gig around 2008, and he spends a couple hours on it per week. Most of my questions were meant to get at his motivations. I wanted to know what made him tick. He said the reason he prank calls is because he's addicted to people's reactions to the soundboards. He also said that he uses offensive soundboards because they get the best reactions. He doesn't seem concerned with respecting the victims. For example, Brad Carter says that if someone gets really upset on one of his phone calls, he'll cop to the prank. Nomad Cow doesn't break character. He said, quote, it doesn't matter how much respect I have for them. If it's funny, I will upload the calls. But he does draw some lines. If a caller gives their name or number on a call, he'll cut it out. Okay, hi. Uh, my name is and I'm a reporter at the local uh, radio station here in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, my number is Okay. Because I can't talk to the person behind Nomad Cow at BK directly, it's hard to completely figure him out. I have to read between the lines a lot. My gut says that he isn't malicious, but he makes it pretty clear that his hobby is a selfish one. I've spent a lot of time thinking about Nomad Cow and this payphone and everything that's happened since I first heard about it. And honestly, I'm sad that it's gone. Every time I pass the concrete pad where the phone used to be, I can't help but feel that I've ruined this oddity in a time where oddities are hard to come by. I wish that the calls weren't so vulgar and offensive, but still, everyone I talked to who knew about the phone was so excited to tell me about it. It's fun to encounter something as strange as a payphone ringing in the middle of the night, even if the voice on the other end is kind of gross. As for Nomad Cow, things have slowed down, 
at least temporarily. The only new videos he's posted to YouTube since the removal are one using numbers people posted on the app Yik Yak and another called Reporter Answers Payphone, which is a compilation of all the times I answer the phone. Presumably, this isn't the end. While he lost the payphone in this prime location that he'd been grooming for years, there are still thousands of payphones out there, even some in Colombia, where he might be able to find a fresh start. But for now, for Nomad Cow at BK, for everyone who's ever answered the payphone, and for everyone who likes a good bit of mystery, sorry. We're sorry. You have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you have reached this recording in error, please check the number and try your call again. Putting Columbia's Payphone Mystery to Rest was produced by Emerald O'Brien for public radio station KBIA in Columbia, Missouri. For a playlist of the many other fabulous stories about payphones, check out our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Suffering that's becoming increasingly rare these days in the age of cell phones, tablets, and smartphones. It's a Verizon payphone. I just spotted this in the park. It's been here the better part of a decade, and it's been here all this time, never changed. It's just sitting back here on this pathway. I thought I'd capture it because I don't know how for how for how much longer it's going to still be here. A box full of postcards, stamped and unsent, may seem pretty insignificant. But as Laura Barton explains, those cards can capture a time and a place long forgotten. In my storage facility, there were many boxes of books and records and a suitcase full of shoes I was unlikely to ever wear again. The final box was different. It held objects not chosen but given to me, and then in truth barely objects at all. This scrappy box full of papers, postcards, paraphernalia, was something more like sentiments netted, something more like the fumes of a warm life. Over several afternoons that spring, I sat on the floor of my living room with the box and sifted through years of correspondence. Letters from lovers and friends from strangers and readers, and people long gone. The cards brought on my wedding day. The notes they sent when we broke up. Missives from acquaintances half forgotten. Fifty filing cards from my first love, each one detailing a single thing he liked about me. And perhaps that was the power of it all. To come to see yourself through others' eyes. A box that holds all the ways in which you are uniquely loved. Somewhere deep in the box, I found a paper bag that held a small collection of postcards, addressed, stamped, but unwritten and unsent, all of them to my parents. The pictures showed a variety of views from America's southern states, flame vines and orchids against a turquoise sky, a cotton field, the Blue Ridge Mountains. What did I mean to write in those blank spaces? Did I plan to speak of the weather, or the food, or the music? Did I have tales of the road, or the land, or the people I'd met? Quite possibly, I had nothing to say. 
After all, they were postcards bought on a trip I made when it seemed to me I had lost my voice, when I was struck dumb with sadness and gave up writing and reading and all words at all. There was still a grief to the muteness of those postcards. Yet here in the box, amid all the clamouring voices of my past, I looked at them now as the pale, peaceful heart of all my belongings, the still point and the root. I saw them as a reminder that sometimes it is okay to have nothing to say, that there are times to stand still and listen, to be the page and not the print. Perhaps then I should have sent them. Perhaps their blankness would have said enough. Perhaps what they said in all their vastness was this. I am out in the world. I have found the space and the nothingness I need. But I am thinking of you. And in all this silence, it is still your voice that I hear. Unsent was written and produced by Laura Barton for Shortcuts from Falling Tree Productions and BBC Radio 4. Send us a postcard from Nashville, Columbia, or anywhere else in the world. Sure, it's old-fashioned and slow compared to, say, you know, a text. But here's the thing. I promise I will write you back. Myself. Grab a pen. Here's our address. Resound, Third Coast International Audio Festival, 848 East Grand Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60611. Beautiful things can happen in the mail. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk with Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world, and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, Resound. All diamonds, no rough. <laughs>